Welcome to Special Briefing, where we dig into how states, cities, and counties are faring since COVID-19 arrived, and how decisions made in Washington are impacting their response. We're brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. And now, please join Special Briefing. Well, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you may be. I'm Bill Glaskell from the Volcker Alliance, and I'm here today with Susan Walker, co-director of the Penn Institute for Urban Research. Hello, Susan. Hello there. Good morning. How are you? And this is Special Briefing, and it's coming to you on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. Today, along with our expert panel, we're welcoming a very special guest, Ross Baraka, the mayor of Newark, New Jersey, a city where Susan and I both have long family roots. Mayor Baraka will share his vision for Jersey's biggest city and how he spearheaded the replacement of 17,000 hazardous lead water service lines, which is a model for other cities to follow as they address their clean water needs. And actually, this gets me to the focus of today's program. While Congress debates the huge Biden infrastructure package and debates and debates, the American Rescue Plan Act passed earlier this year in response to COVID-19, it singles out two specific areas for investment, clean water and broadband. In addition to Mayor Baraka, to discuss these needs today, we're joined by the best minds around, Catherine DeWitt of the Pew Trusts, Tom Hazlett of Clemson University, and former FCC chief economist, incidentally, and Howard Newkrug, the head of Penn's Water Institute and the former chief of Philly Water. He was fielding questions upon questions when Philly was hit by floods after uh, Tropical Storm Ida, and I'm sure he'll give us an update on where Philly is. We took questions from many of you in advance. Thank you for that, and keep those questions coming in future sessions. And remember, this session is on the record and will be available shortly to view and download on the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites. A special thank you to the Alliance, contributors to Penn IUR, and the Century Foundation for your generous support of this program. And now, without further ado, let's welcome Mayor Ross Baraka. Good morning from Newark. Thanks so much for making time in a very, very busy schedule that I know you have. But tell us, please, how Newark is faring in the fight against COVID-19 and what is your vision for the city? Thank you. I just want to thank first Penn Institute for Urban Research, obviously, and the Volcker Alliance for this invitation to be on with you guys today. No one expected us to be in the middle of this pandemic right now. I don't think anybody would have guessed or prepared themselves for what we've been going through in the last year or so. Right now, I think we are doing fairly well in Newark around COVID. Over 60% of our residents, 12 and up, are fully vaccinated, and over 70% have at least one shot. We prayerfully, by the end of the year, will be well over 80% based on the uh, pathway and the efforts that we have undertaken here in the city of Newark. So that's a positive thing for us, though it has ravaged our community terribly, and uh, it has really shown us the inequity that exists in our system before COVID has really unearthed all of those things. And so all of the funding that we've been getting from the federal government around ARPA and other kind of monies we've been using, specifically to address some of those inequities, rent burden households, trying to help them pay rent, helping small businesses who obviously did not get any of the PPP money to make sure that they were able to make it through this. We've done four rounds of funding actually to make sure the businesses were sound as well. We are addressing homelessness and affordable housing with this money. So there are a lot of things that we are engaged in trying to right some of the inequity that exists in our community to one, help people manage COVID and prayerfully after COVID is behind us to work on trying to fix those issues permanently. Some of the very specific things that I know you want me to get on today The lead service lines, we've been dealing with lead service lines for almost two years now. We have actually replaced almost 22,000 lead service lines in less than two years here in the city of Newark with the help of the county of Essex, helping us uh, secure a bond with the help of the state local finance board, helping us to create the infrastructure to do so, 
and passing laws that allowed us to public dollars to pay for private fixes and the local ordinance here with our city municipal government. Our council allowed us to fix people's lead service lines in homes that they did not own because there are a lot of landlords who are not present. Over 75% of the folks in the city of Newark are renters, which would have posed a serious problem if we didn't have local legislation that would have allowed us to go on people's property and actually replace their lead service lines. So we've already engaged in that process and we're near end. We are hopeful that some of the state's ARP money will be used to kind of offset some of the costs that we expended in that process, help us pay some of the, the debt service on some of this, that the debt that we incurred because of the, the undertaking that we took on. We also are using this money for flood mitigation, a rehab our, our water and waste pump stations to upgrade fire hydrants, to deal with resiliency. You know, we had a serious Hurricane Ida hit us very hard in New Jersey, and we had serious flooding in and around Newark and North Jersey area that uh, affected homes, businesses, streets, highways, infrastructure in general. And so we're using some of the ARP dollars to address some of that. We are constantly working with the uh, county and the state government to use the infrastructure bank to kind of use the money from the federal government and subsidize some of that money or supplement some of the money through the infrastructure bank to create the pot of money that we need to be able to do the water infrastructure changes and development that we uh, so desperately need in the city of Newark. And we're going to keep doing that. Obviously, we can't get it done without the county and the state government. We're also uh, trying to address this technological divide that exists in the city. We discovered that, obviously, we knew it existed, but it became more obvious again in COVID when we had to shut schools down and everybody began to go to school virtually. And many people did not have hard devices, but worse than that, they did not have internet service or proper internet service or broadband to be able to do virtual learning from home anyway. Some of the buildings were very old. Some didn't have access to cable or internet service at all. So it made it difficult. Even when we passed out tablets to families, when the school system did that, they still were unable to get solid connections. We are directly using these dollars to begin to push our Newark fiber program. You know, Newark has its own fiber. And we deliver gigabit and multi-gigabit internet to thousands of Newark residents, businesses, and nonprofit organizations now, and some government entities as well. And so we're looking to begin to bolster the underlying network powering Newark Fiber and maintain the program as it already exists, but also to expand it or create a growth strategy. And so what we're doing is developing a plan using the funding in a two-year time frame that could not be done in two years without the ARPA funding. What we're doing is auditing and assessing and mapping our fiber optic infrastructure. We're doing fiber maintenance and emergency repairs. We're creating six mega hubs, 15 super hubs, 42 hubs, and 68 mini hubs, and we're installing additional fiber strands to every ward of the city of Newark and to the port of Newark as well. We also have to bolster up our staff in order to do that and create opportunity for network maintenance and repairs, and also using some of those dollars for smart city initiative and devices. So our plan is to give free Wi-Fi to every resident and public housing, to give free Wi-Fi to every school building, here in the city of Newark to make it available to businesses on, on the port of Newark, to businesses in the downtown community, and make very, very, very cheap Wi-Fi available to residents throughout the city of Newark in every single ward of the city by expanding our present fiber optic network into the deepest parts of the city. And we are definitely are able to do that with this infrastructure funding, ARPA funding, and we can do it in two years with this funding as well, which I think is miraculous. We get to pull that off. And the kind of digital divide that we had during COVID would almost be non-existent, you know, at least in terms of be, ha having people have access to fiber and broadband. Us getting them the uh, actual tablets or Chromebooks or computers is something that we can work out. But ultimately, I think the key is making sure everybody has access to not only fiber, but good fiber, you know, fast fiber, some of the fastest fiber in this area. And so we're, we're proud of that. And we absolutely know that these dollars can help us get to where we want to go. And with the water and sewer and broadband and infrastructure improvements as a whole, 
the dollars from the American Rescue Plan Act, we accelerate our plans and improve the quality of life of the people that we serve every single day. This money is a godsend for us. What I didn't say, it, it's going to help us offset some of the bills that we have in terms of local government, enabling us not to lay people off, police, fire, social workers, all the nurses in the health department, all of the folks that are dealing with COVID infrastructure, we're able to keep them and not have any interruption in service, but more importantly, address some of these divides that exist as inequity, whether it's the digital divide, access to clean water, mitigating floods and having resiliency in our community at the same time, and addressing some of the pocketbook issues around housing and food in people's homes at the same time. So thank you for having me. I'm glad to to talk about what we're doing with these dollars, because without it, we would be in a definitely difficult situation, more difficult than we already are in. Well, thank you so much, Mr. Mayor. Little known fact, I got my career started about two blocks from City Hall in, in Newark, and uh, maybe it's time to move back. I hope you can stay for the discussion and the Q&A afterwards. But as long as you're finishing up on the subject of broadband and the amazing work you're doing in Newark, let's begin the discussion with our two expert broadband panelists and start with Catherine DeWitt from The Pew, who's going to talk about what states and cities are doing with their federal broadband money right now. Catherine? Hi, uh, and thank you so much for having me today. My name is Catherine DeWitt. I'm the project director for the Broadband Access Initiative at the Pew Charitable Trusts. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Pew, we are a nonpartisan nonprofit a research organization that works with lawmakers across the country at every level of government and around the world on issues ranging from broadband and state fiscal health to how to protect penguins. Please don't ask me about penguins because I don't know anything about them. As I said, I lead the Broadband Access Initiative, and for the last three years, my team has been looking at what states are doing to bridge the digital divide and what we can learn from those activities to solve what is truly a national challenge. Let's start with why we actually began this research, and it was started with a simple but kind of shocking question, which was, we have spent tens of billions of dollars in public funds, taxpayer money and broadband, but we still had significant gaps in broadband access across the country. Moreover, we had poor data, limited understanding of affordability, and really little insight as to why or why not funds that have been spent to date have been effective. While there have been some research on federal programs and some research on state programs, there was almost no research done on states, particularly after the Recovery Act, which did invest several hundred million dollars in state and the operational capacity of state programs. Before I move forward, I do think it's important to note that understanding the state and local context in broadband is actually quite important. And that's for a few reasons. The first of which is that broadband policy itself is really driven at the state level. And the local context, both for the types of providers that are in a state, the number of providers that are in a state, also the geography, demographics, topography, politics, the combination of those factors all fit together in a way that ultimately are the symptoms of the digital divide within that state and within localities. So getting a better understanding not only of what the challenges are, but also then how states were responding to them, we felt was very important to, again, crafting national solutions. So in order to start understanding these challenges, we started with a 50-state analysis of all broadband deployment law. We looked at what states were doing in policy, and what we found is that they were really answering questions like, what is broadband? They were defining it, whether it was by speed or technology or availability. They were assigning responsibility within state government for who was responsible either for oversight or for administering programs. They were also clarifying who could and could not provide broadband connectivity. In most recent years, uh, that trend has really leaned towards cooperatives, for example. States were also doing things like establishing programs, creating incentives, and doing things like addressing access to the right-of-way, and in some factors, competition and consumer protection. All of that information is stored in a database on our website. It's called the State Broadband Policy Explorer. If you have any questions about that, please feel free to reach out to me. But after we did that policy research, uh, we did case study work in nine states and more than 300 interviews with state leaders and lawmakers, internet service providers, grant recipients, and other partners. And ultimately what we found is that it really is less about looking for that ideal programmatic model and more about adapting specific activities uh, to specific state needs. 
So what does that actually mean? What we ultimately found is that state programs were really successful by focusing on the why of broadband and then on implementing inclusive and community-based approaches. So when I'm talking about the why, that is focusing on broadband, not as the end game, it is broadband as a means to an end. So it is the state designing programs, crafting policy by focusing on broadband as a tool for economic development, access to education, healthcare. The most successful state programs were the ones that were designing their strategies with these outcomes in mind. Minnesota is the most prominent of these examples. Um, You can also see this in states like West Virginia, and California as well. The other factor is that they were inclusive and focused on these community-based solutions. We mean inclusive in the sense that it wasn't just the telecommunications industry and the public sector sitting at the table working these deals out. You had local leaders who were participating in these conversations. You had uh, members of the community who were leading the charge and call for better connectivity. You also had all different types of industries who relied on these connections and making sure that their workforce were actually able to use those connections who were also involved in these conversations, both in highlighting gaps in policy, highlighting gaps in access, and then talking about the appropriate solutions to actually drive success and outcomes. The most successful example of this and most comprehensive example of this is Virginia's Commonwealth Connect Coalition. So a few things that we can look at this and how an implementation, which is particularly important for the state and local leaders who are on the phone right now. There's a heavy emphasis across the country on statewide, regional, and local planning. These planning initiatives are designed to assess the digital divide, identify measurable goals, identify the intended outcomes, and then come up with a plan for achieving them. And again, more often than not, these plans are directly tied, again, to those specific outcomes related to economic development, education, healthcare, and any other policy priority they may have. There's also a heavy emphasis on local capacity building and training. That means that this is state leaders focusing on building the education and technical awareness of the local leaders who are participating in these broadband projects. And that's not turning them into broadband experts. It's just giving them enough information. So that way they're not walking into these conversations completely clueless. Broadband is very technical. It can be very overwhelming. And for anybody who is a non-subject matter expert, you want to make sure that they have at least a baseline of information to start with. So the last piece uh, before I'll wrap it up here is that we're seeing more states either require or incentivize community engagement and community readiness in their programs. Community engagement means that any entity, whether it is a private sector ISP or um, any other type of applicant for state funds, demonstrating that there is community buy-in in the approach. For example, in Tennessee, any applicant has to demonstrate that a certain percentage of the community is aware of this broadband project and has agreed also to buy services from this program. When we're talking about incentivizing community readiness, this is where we're talking about these things like broadband ready certifications. What this says is that a locality has gone through a process of, for example, identifying someone in local government who is the point person for broadband, or they've assessed their permitting processes to identify opportunities to streamline those permitting processes. These steps are very important to demonstrate to internet service providers, we've done our due diligence, we can be good partners. And states are incentivizing this by adding points on applications and again, by certifying those promotional opportunities for communities to say that they're investment ready. Before I um, turn the mic back over, I do want to note one thing about all of this regarding federal policy and the shift that we've seen in the last year. It's not only noteworthy that federal funds are now for broadband are now being led by states and being driven by states. We are seeing funds that are able to be used for the entire digital divide. The digital divide is not just about the absence of infrastructure. It is about the affordability of those connections and the ability to use those connections. What is noteworthy about federal policy now is that we are combining all three of those elements into a single bill and we are putting the leadership in the hands of the people who know these problems best and those are state and local leaders. So for the state and local leaders again who are on the phone now preparing for incoming funds you can do a couple of things. The first and most important of which is reaching out to your state broadband offices. See how you can help see what their plan is to use federal funds and then begin articulating and thinking through what your stakeholders need, not just in terms of connections, but in terms of skills, devices, and the affordability of those connections. And not just what they need today, 
but five, 10 and 15 years into the future. So with that, I'm looking forward to the Q&A and thank you again for having me. Thank you, Catherine. That was remarkable oversight. We'll have many questions about the actual implementation. And we now turn to Tom Hazlett, who as the former chair of the FCC has much knowledge of this as well and is currently holds the Macaulay Endowed Chair in Economics at Clemson University. Tom, we look forward to your thoughts on this important issue. Thanks very much, Susan. Yes, actually, I was, I was not the chair of the commission, but I was chief economist, but I appreciate the promotion. So I wanted to start by just, you know, the broadest overview in, in terms of broadband is the United States obviously has extensive broadband coverage. The Federal Communications Commission estimates 96% of the households have uh, direct access to a fixed network, which operates at at least 25 megabits per second, which is the definition for the last several years since uh, 2015 that the commission has had for broadband. There's about a remaining um, 4% by FCC estimates that do not have this access, yet they have access to uh, satellite wireless of some sort, and particularly with 5G built out currently underway, the immediate question becomes, and the policy choice, is to how to substitute the sort of the older fixed technologies, including fiber to the home with wireless, and the policy um, cut on uh, technological neutrality comes in. We might get back to that in a moment. So access, having broadband available is the first step. And as uh, Catherine was alluding to, adoption, uh, getting um, people online and being able to gainfully use internet access is basically the second step. There's a lot of interest uh, traditionally, particularly at the federal level in the former, but the focus has been a lot less on the latter. And that's been problematic because the policies and the funding have generally uh, tended to tie to carriers. And in many cases, the actual users have gotten lost in the shuffle. So that's where a lot of the emphasis might be at the state level, as we just heard. It might be of interest uh, to people today uh, looking forward with a new round of funding. Now, the federal subsidies that we are familiar with, and we actually do have quite a bit of empirical evidence on, they have been substantial since um, the 1996 Telecommunications Act. In current dollars, we have had over about $225 billion that have gone out. These funds are awarded annually. In recent years, they've reached levels of about $10 billion. These are to try to extend the system, the network coverage, by payments to carriers and by some funding for a schools and library program, and then some direct subsidies to low-income consumers. Relatively speaking, there's been massive investment in the rural subsidies because the old system, the old AT&T monopoly prior to divestiture, and then this sort of broke down when competition was introduced, the old system actually subsidized the expansion of the network to some degree by the rate structure. That is to say, people would have to pay high prices for long distance access, much more than the cost of the service. And uh, business customers would also pay relatively high rates. And then the, uh, uh, the rates for local use would be subsidized to some degree by that. And that system was supposed to do the trick. There's some question as to what trick it actually did. But the system we, we had to go to was a much more explicit system of subsidies the pattern has been fairly distinct that over a thousand rural telecommunications carriers, I'm talking about over a thousand telephone companies, have actually received funding. The entire sector has been structured around these cost plus awards. And of course, cost plus, uh, as we know from the military procurement and other experiments, so to speak, can reward inefficiency. And uh, we've seen very high costs and relatively little evidence that uh, the system was working to expand uh, the size of the network. It also brought to bear an important split between rural and urban markets. Uh, urban and suburban customers currently pay taxes that are significant for the $10 billion. The entire system is funded at the federal level by fees paid on telecommunications charges. And these tend to be highly regressive. It's a flat rate that is charged now of certain portions of communications fees, but these fees tend to be a much higher percentage of the budget 
of a low-income household than of others. So the system has obviously been challenged by many within the system and by many economists outside the system. In fact, about a decade ago, economists were rather vocal and uh, somewhat successful, which is that in recommending a reform to the system, which was actually adopted during the Obama FCC years, to take some of the monies and award them, not on a cost plus basis, but on a competitive so-called reverse auction, where the potential suppliers would make offers to serve and state prices for doing so. And uh, indeed, the auctions, the initial auctions that have been run now, have shown that uh, costs can go down very considerably. Now, of course, this gets back to this question of technological neutrality. Are you going to allow wireless carriers, say with new 5G products, and satellite carriers to submit bids and to provide the services? The right answer for economists is yes, There have to be certain stipulations and quality controls, and there has to be accountability that the services are actually provided. But the point of the competition is to get all the firms to compete with each other, not to favor one technology over another, and to let the most efficient supplier win in establishing more access to more households. And in fact, a satellite firm in the last auction, reverse auction held for procurement of these universal service subsidies was a satellite carrier that committed to extending service to 190,000 new locations and did so at a, a, a discounts that were more than 70% over the cost plus accounting that would have been otherwise used to get those home serve. So you can make the dollars move a lot farther if you have a more efficient system that takes more competitive options into account. That's sort of the high level of the federal. We do have to be careful about simple solutions. The uh, GAO has done a number of reports over the years about the lack of accountability in many of these programs, including the so-called high-cost fund payments to carriers, and as well in the so-called E-rate program that is now distributing about $4 billion a year to schools and libraries around the United States. Again, there have been quite the disappointing results in tying those expenditures to actual learning improvements by the students in the affected school districts. So accountability has to be improved to get the results that are promised by the new expenditures. That's the thumbnail sketch, and thank you very much for uh, having this conference and for asking me to participate. Tom, that's wonderful. We thank you so much, and we look forward to a robust Q&A on these issues of access to broadband, which is the water of the coming century in this past recent decades. But now let's go back to the other key infrastructure spending, which is key to the growth of cities and the health of cities, which is actually water. And we have with us the policy innovator of the country, Howard Newkrug, who we are also thrilled to have at the University of Pennsylvania as head of our water center and previously an extremely innovative leader of Philly Water. So please take us to the water issues that are part of the divide facing America. Well, good morning and thank you, Graham and Susan, for inviting me to join in this discussion. I am uh, going to talk, obviously, about the importance of federal financial support for the nation's drinking water, wastewater, and stormwater utilities. The bottom line, if we want our cities to become sustainable and resilient cities of the future, water will need to be a key part of the agenda. As Susan noted, I'm Howard Newkrug, I'm the Executive Director of the Water Center at Penn. The Water Center is a nonprofit applied research arm of the University of Pennsylvania, and our primary purpose is to find solutions to the challenges facing urban and rural water systems, the watersheds that support them, and the communities that rely on them. Our work builds on the concept of integrated water systems and the values of equity, justice, and community resilience. As many of you know, uh, America's water infrastructure requires significant renewal and upgrade. According to the American Society of Civil Engineers, our water infrastructure received grades of C minus, D plus, and D. And speaking as a professor from an Ivy League university, I can tell you that these are not good grades. These are the grades of systems that are highly vulnerable to partial or complete failure. And this has to change. After all, if America can't afford to provide clean and safe water to all of its citizens, what nation can? The last major federal funding program for water infrastructure came with the Clean Water Act's 
construction grants program in the 1970s and the 1980s. The program was a huge success, improving our nation's water quality dramatically, but much still needs to be done. Today, uh, federal support for water infrastructure amounts to about 5% of all the expenditures in the water sector. The rest is raised locally through water rates and through municipal or revenue bonds. Our vision as an industry is to achieve fishable, swimmable, drinkable, accessible, attractive, and safe water that supports community health and sustainability, enhances economic opportunities, and promotes affordable and resilient neighborhoods. Our goal is to rebuild our nation's water systems with new innovations and technologies that will take our 19th and 20th century infrastructure securely through the 21st century. Overlying the enormous costs of replacing our aging infrastructure is preparing for climate change and its impact on water scarcity, water quality, flooding, drought, sea level rise, as we've seen in, with Hurricane Ida and, and others. In the Northeast, we're seeing extreme weather events where storms are more intense and of longer duration and at increased risk to life and property. Today, our nation's wastewater utilities are moving from being a city's major user of energy to a net zero or even a net positive energy facilities. That is, water systems are generating enough energy in-house to not just run its operations independent of the energy grid, but enough to sell back excess to the community. We are achieving this by increasing conservation and reducing the amount of stormwater that enters our sewers. We're using more energy efficient equipment and pumps. We are investing in advanced digitization and artificial intelligence to better monitor and optimize our systems. We're producing renewable energy by using wind turbines, floating solar cells on our reservoirs, and optimizing the generation of methane gas. A new goal of the industry is to become greenhouse gas neutral facilities, and that is a remarkable change from just 10 years ago. We're also beginning to recover other resources from the waste stream, phosphorus, microplastics, carbon, rare earth materials, fertilizers, and even the thermal heat resident within the water. And perhaps most significant is the recovery of the water itself. We can now treat wastewater to a level appropriate for reuse, even to the level of direct potable reuse in communities. As you can imagine, this holds really great promise for our friends on the West Coast. Increasingly, clean water utilities are becoming leaders of sustainability in their communities. This past June, Philadelphia Water hit a milestone. It was its 10th anniversary of the groundbreaking Green City Clean Waters Initiative. And in just those 10 years, Philadelphia has greened previously impervious land area sufficient to prevent 3 billion gallons a year of combined sewage overflow, and if you don't know what that is, bless you, into the streams and rivers. But Philadelphia is just 25% or so toward the ultimate discharge reduction goal, and the next 15 years will require an even greater influx of money and innovation if we are to reach our water quality goals. So in summary, our water challenges uh, will only continue to increase. While great strides have been made to make the water sector more efficient, more resilient, more sustainable, and more equitable, the renewal and upgrade of our nation's water infrastructure will be extensive and expensive. Any increase in federal appropriations would help bring the water sector and the country closer to 21st century standards and our nation's expectations of resiliency and sustainability. Thank you, and back to you, Susan. Thank you very much, Howard. I am going to make some general questions to all the panelists, and then I will turn it to Bill, who will go through some of the excellent questions that have come in. I'm going to ask all the panelists, starting with you, Mayor, to take a visionary perspective, and if, in fact, you could have your wishes about a visionary, optimal combination of national, state, and local mayor, what would that look like on the issues of broadband, perhaps and water, or just perhaps more generally? What we heard from Tom and others is we need cooperation across levels of government. How would you like to see this go generally to cover, to help close the divides, the digital divide, and also the access to clean water? And let's start with you, Mayor, if, 
if we can. And then we'll go to Tom and then to Catherine and then to Howard again. Please go ahead, Mayor. Absolutely. Uh, I agree that there, none of this can get done without any serious level of cooperation across the sectors and agencies. It just has to happen. Usually the federal government does something. They may send money to the state and locally we know in, nothing about it and we're fighting each other for small bit of money that may trickle down from the state or county government. It would be great if there was some kind of a task force that included federal, state, and local officials around the issue of broadband, where we create federal policy, state policy, and local policy together, as well as instruments that would allow us to spend this money and direction on how to spend it, like a, a toolkit, if you will, that's developed for local governments about how to invest money, what they should be investing in on, what are the first, second, and third steps, and getting the biggest bang for our buck. How do we make sure we create access to broadband to the residents at low or no cost at all and using policy and money from the federal and state government to do that? And the money has to come to cities in order to make it happen because that's where people actually live, right? They live in the cities. I know we talk about the state, but people live in cities and towns. So we have to execute all of these things. And I think the same thing around clean water. Usually things are guided by the EDA. Then the DEP on our level, NJDEP, and, you know, we basically just get told what to do in terms of violations here and there. But there is really very small amount of cooperation on how to create, again, a toolkit to create clean water, how to deal with lead service lines. There's cities all over the country that are trying to replace lead service lines. And they're telling people that they, it's going to take them 10, 15, 20 years to replace lead service lines in less amounts than we have. We've changed almost 22,000 in two years. It took about 10 years to do 15,000. This makes no sense. We have to get together on this and fix it all over the country. And I think cooperation on all levels of government is the only way that it happens. Thank you, Mayor. Cooperation, but also learning from what works. That, of course, right, is the exactly. genius of our federal, state, and local system. And it sounds like you, Mayor, have much to teach as other exemplars do, particularly on the lead water that is very heartening. And Tom Hazlett, one of the things that you said that was very heartening is the reverse auction and how it helped use the money effectively. So tell us more about, we heard from the mayor, how it would be useful perhaps to have panels to create toolkits. And of course, Catherine, you are putting together toolkits, but also how to make the system work so that the funding we have goes a long way to solve our problems. Tom? Yes. Yeah, so through bitter experience, we've seen that when you get stuck on one particular path, you really get in trouble. And we've had over the, the last 20 years, an opportunity to see very large funding go to very um, inefficient phone companies at costs that were really outrageous because that's, that's soaking the resources of the system. And yet we wouldn't open up to competition, say wireless carriers to compete head-to-head with the old telephone carriers. More than that, when we did initially open things up, we did it to duplicate, not to reduce costs, but to simply add wireless subsidies to the old telephone subsidies. And now, finally, we've moved over the last few years to a system where we really can seize the efficient path for the low-cost bid. And so that has opened things up and it's forced these decisions about whether or not a high-speed wireless system or a satellite system can compete with a cable TV or a plain old telephone service. And in fact, of course they can, but there have to be certain rules about quality standards in place and those have to be reasonable. And on the other hand, they have to be enforced so that when firms make commitments and receive subsidies, that in fact there is follow-up and there is responsibility for those companies if they do not actually build what was promised, that there is a financial consequence to that. We do have some experience on that. We've gotten very good results in terms of driving down costs in FCC auctions that have been held just in the last couple of years. And so that's been um, a very important part of our toolkit now. So if I may, just a quick follow-up, Tom. So the FCC reverse auctions have worked in terms of choosing more effective cost at lower cost. What about the follow-up, the enforcement and the accountability? Where do you see the way forward there? I assume it's local and state have to be accountable because the results have to be at the local and state level. So there must be a functions there. Where are we on that? 
Even worse, it's a shared responsibility. So those linkages have to be established, as, as the mayor has talked about. You do need coordination. And the, you know, the local communities have to be involved in monitoring whether or not those systems get built and whether or not those services are operated at the level of quality promised. So that's where we are now. There, I'm not going to sugarcoat that. There's some controversy about the a fairly large number of providers. It's a competitive system, so there should be a large number that are providing different solutions in different parts of the country. You know, with all the diversity we have in the big United States of America, that's also what you want. You want a lot of locally well-crafted solutions. So tying it together have to be some standards about what is actually being paid for, however, and best practices have been the responsibility of the FCC to draw up. There obviously has to be more progress on that. And that's that's right where the system stands right now. Thank you. And of course, that eyes on for efficacy is exactly where you are, Catherine. Tell us more about what you're doing in the way forward as you see it. Yeah, the focus on accountability from states is actually a very positive finding from our research and how states are really emphasizing that accountability because there hasn't been uh, much enforcement from the federal government to date. And there's been quite a bit of frustration at the local level, particularly because communities are being passed over, deemed ineligible for funds because they're considered quote unquote served. So states have subsequently responded by saying, if you default on your agreements, if you do not provide services that are offered, if you do not agree to submit data, then you are no longer eligible for these funds. And we're seeing that in states, uh, namely Colorado, but in other states as well. And this is something that we anticipate actually will increase with incoming federal funds. But I do think it is important to come back to a point that the mayor made at the top of this segment that is not emphasized enough. This is not a rural availability and urban affordability problem. When we are talking about the digital divide, this is affordability and availability and quality. And this is something that affects communities of all types. And the idea that it is a rural availability and urban affordability crisis is a harmful and misleading narrative that really oversimplifies the problem and subsequently then oversimplifies the solutions. But that's why we really do need that federal, state, and local approach that all of us are really in violent agreement on and why we do need that heavy engagement from state and local leaders in particular, which is why the infrastructure bill, for example, it creates a challenge process for the FCC where state and local government can submit their own data to challenge the maps that the FCC produces. This is a significant step forward because there hadn't yet been a process for state and local entities to do that to date. So what we're seeing there is actual meaningful collaboration, if assuming the infrastructure bill passes, but is a meaningful opportunity and more importantly, a process for state and local authorities to do that. But going to this point about you know, the rural availability and urban affordability piece, unserved and underserved communities are, are that way for a reason. It's because they don't offer an obvious business case for providers. So when you look at the data, it is overwhelmingly low-income communities that have either no access to internet or have access to low-quality internet. So when we're talking about solutions and we're talking about achieving efficiencies via these solutions, we have to take that into consideration. So whether that is managing the match, the size of the match, whether it's thinking very strategically about when and where to use reverse auctions, for example, in perhaps in urban communities and using uh, wireless mesh networks as a means to bring down costs and increase the quality of connections. But it is really important to come back to this idea that if we are going for universal availability, if that is our ultimate objective, we can't always achieve economic efficiency through that because the market just doesn't support it. And that's why we, again, need to have use every tool in our toolbox in order to get to universal access. Universal access and violent agreement. I like both this phrase. <laughs> Howard, do you see violent agreement on the need for cooperation across local, state, and federal? And where are we on that in water? It's so interesting listening to Catherine talk about universal access because uh, you know the key phrase that's going around the water industry now is the human right to good quality and sufficient water. And it's really the same thing, and it's the same communities. It's our underserved communities that largely or have been seen for at least 100 years now 
poor quality water. Many of the lead service lines in Philadelphia and Newark and elsewhere are in the poorer communities. How you balance all that is needs special insight. We need to work very closely with our communities to make them better for everything, sustainability and resilience. And, and water plays a key part in that because water is about leveraging. How do you leverage putting in a, a rain garden and a community that also is getting a new street, maybe some, some new cable, it's getting a, a new park uh, associated with a stormwater park for water. So how do you uplift communities and provide a higher level of service from government by integrating all the water systems together. In terms of the federal, state, and local, there's a lot of good people trying to do the right thing, but those are three bureaucracies, <laughs> political bureaucracies that are now on top of each other. And of course, you're going to have situations where you're not getting the most efficient and a lack of clear priority from that type of government response. Number one, I want to remind everybody you're watching and listening to special briefing from Penn IUR and the Volcker Alliance on both of our websites. And please come on back to watch uh, two dozen odd replays that we have archived there. Number two, I have a question for Howard and Mayor Baraka both, which is, you know, stay on the water subject for a second. We've just been through in the East Coast some horrible flooding from Tropical Storm Ida, both in Philadelphia and Newark in the town where I live. You know, what are the lessons learned you, besides the cleanup, the water receded? So what do you need to do to mitigate the next storm? And also, if you have time, Howard, in the West, we've got the opposite problem. We've seen California asking for over a billion dollars for drought mitigation relief. That's a water need, too. Tell us about your lessons learned and what we can take back to our communities. Obviously, these storms are becoming more frequent and more severe as of late. And in cities like Newark that are, you know, mostly impervious surface next to water systems like the Passaic and our combined sewer overflow that also needs to be addressed and fixed. The sewer system goes out into the Passaic and adds to the tide that gets higher and the storms. Flooding is inevitable. Even in, in mid-sized storms, we get flooding. And these storms that become very severe the flooding is worse and damaging. And so we need a, a serious resiliency plan statewide. Again, all parties involved in the flood mitigation resiliency plan to deal with this. And we need to address these environmental inequities that exist in our communities, impervious surfacing, all these hard tops and black tops that exist in our community, not enough trees and not enough garden space, not enough area where the water can actually be absorbed. And so there's nowhere for it to go, but on the ground and into the sewer system. And it costs money. We need money to uncombine our sewer <laughs> overflow system, right? And begin to separate the sewer system from the drain, a water drainage system. And all of that takes a lot of money. We've already invested money in trying to uh, rehab our water and water pump stations to get water out of there, to do all of the things that we need to do, repairing miles and miles of sewer lines in the city. And we still have not repaired the CSO sewer system in the city that absolutely needs to be done that also contributes to flooding in one way or the other. We just have to do that. And really the barrier is money. You know, that's the real barrier, you know, <laughs> full transparency to be able to get these things done. Howard? I absolutely agree with Mayor and everything he said. And I often try to explain to my class that you could be in the middle of the Pacific Ocean and you could build a desal plant and you could run pipe to anywhere in the world and provide high quality drinking water. The problem is the cost and everything that we're doing, we're presetting priorities. Some of them are politically based and some are based upon the reality of what you really need to get done and consent orders and other things, but there's just not enough money. When you look at something like Hurricane Ida, you know, the, the response I got, what did people ask me the day after the storm passed through? They said, Howard, aren't you glad you're not the water commissioner anymore? <laughs> I can't believe how many people said that to me. And, and it's really true. It's a very tough job and tough decisions that need to be made into the future. And probably the toughest one that we tend not to talk about, but is going to happen is uh, the issue of retreat. How do you redesign your cities so that there are floodplains and 
people are going to have to be moved to new locations. And I hate to say that because how you actually accomplish that, I don't know. But the issue of retreat and then the issue of migration as people move away from the, the rivers and streams and areas that are going to be flooded and where are they moving to? And quite frankly, how do cities like Trenton and Philadelphia, who are in better shape than your first question, which was about the West Coast, we're going to have water and we're going to have land. We would like to see more people move into our cities. Hmm. How do you do that and, and look at California and Arizona and Texas and say, you know, there's no water. There's no water. You want water, it's going to be very, very, very expensive. And uh, at some point, there are going to be migration. That's just in the U.S. Then you talk about the global migration that's going to happen. So those are the things that I think about when I see Hurricane Ida and the floods like I've never seen before, but do expect to see again. These are conditions that have tremendous implications for tax bases of cities and counties, depending on property taxes and fees. If you stage or manage retreat, those properties won't be taxable anymore. If people are moving in, you're gaining on your tax base, all of which we can reserved for a future discussion. There's a lot of questions that we haven't gotten to on our contact slide. If you want to follow up with any of the participants, please do, or follow up with Susan and me. We'll be very happy to route your questions to the proper authorities at Volker Alliance, at Penn, or on the panel. We're approaching the top of the hour. I want to thank Susan. I want to thank the Volker Alliance, Penn IUR, and the Century Foundation for the generous support that you're providing. You've been listening to Special Briefing, brought to you by the Volcker Alliance and the University of Pennsylvania Institute for Urban Research. Every month, we bring you the latest intelligence, strategies, and trends affecting state and local government finances in the wake of COVID-19 and how they're impacted by Washington's unprecedented response. Visit the Volcker Alliance and Penn IUR websites to learn more, stay up to date, and dive deeper into these critical issues. And be sure to subscribe here or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts so that you'll never miss an insight.